This is Don't Learn to Code, a podcast from VP Logics. My name is Dale Franks. And I'm Bonnie Walker. And we are back once again with, uh, well, geez, I guess we have news this time. We certainly do. We have pertinent and timely information. We learned uh, last Friday that uh, BP Logics had been acquired by a uh, venture capital firm uh, that invests in software companies out in Texas. So we have, uh, well, the same executive team is still here. We just now have a new Paramount leader. We do. Uh, we have a new CEO. He was appointed by the, uh, and actually is part of the investment group that purchased the company. So it looks like they are talking about uh, making the company grow really a lot really quickly. So. Yeah, I, that is the idea, and it's looking pretty exciting from what I see so far. Um, our new CEO is named Girish Pathalkar. I'm hoping that I'm pronouncing the last name exactly accurately. Um, and everybody else is on board. The the uh, founders, Jay and Joby O'Brien, are still a part of the team, and there are no signs of departing. Jay is now the chief product officer and is thrilled to the gills to be able to be more involved with the product because that's his first and truest love. And um, everybody here is is getting used to the adjustment, but so far, um, Girish is doing an awesome job, and um, I'm personally really excited to see what's going to happen. Well, we uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of growth to look forward to, and uh, you know, it, it's difficult with, with any business. There are a couple of really weird and almost universal choke points for growth. Um, one of them, for example, is like $10 million in revenue. There's something that happens there where getting beyond that is hard. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times small businesses, when they grow, get into something called a, a growth trap mm. where the cost of expanding to meet the the increased growth that you have mm -hmm. simply becomes greater than the revenue that you're pulling in from additional customers. Oh, interesting. And, you know, there are a couple of points where as your company grows mm -hmm. and gets big, I'm, I'm not sure that you know at some point you know, 10 million dollars revenue i'm not sure that well you're probably still a small company compared to ibm but i mean you're you know yeah you're not setting up a booth at the farmer's market at that point exactly <laughs> um but those little growth points hit and you know we were kind of at one of those growth points and it uh always helps to have an external investor with big pockets who's willing to take a bet on you. And sure. so much so, in fact, that the investors decided to become the CEO and run the company. And fortunately, he happens to be someone who has a track record of rapidly increasing the growth of companies in that same position. So that's what he's been doing for the last 20 years. So Right. And I, I did take the opportunity to do a little bit of online stalking. And I was really happy with what I found. And so I'm, I am excited about the future. I'm all Pollyanna about the whole thing. Yeah, the last thing you want to find out is, hey, look, th these guys have a history of buying companies, firing everybody, stripping the assets, <laughs> and then selling the empty husk. 
That, that's the last thing you want to see whenever you're recapping the investors' uh, history. So yeah, that's true. Happily, we don't see that. No, we see quite I didn't the opposite. find that. Yeah, it seems like that there's there's a long term investment strategy and um, kind of a long term growth strategy and all of the fun things that go with it. So yeah, it's it's going to be good stuff. But anyway, we have to talk about it because this is a BP Logics podcast. It's kind of the, for those of you who are sort of BP Logics customers and whatever, it, it would be almost impossible for us to do the podcast without mentioning it. So consider it having been mentioned. We did our due diligence. So now let's move on to more general stuff. So I had a uh, an hour today with uh, a customer and all of their people. So there were like you know, 12 people on the call mm-hmm. um, on case management. Oh, that's great. And it's the one thing that is, it's really important to grasp and to get past sort of BPM and mm-hmm. to get into case management because there are so many things that you do that have been treated like traditional processes that are case management, mm-hmm. really, when you look into them. Mm-hmm. And they become really difficult to try to do in a BPM, BPM paradigm. Mm-hmm. So case management is something that, I really try to push people to get into. See, I love case management, which is not to say that I am some sort of savant of of, you know, business process management and and, you know, processes in general, but the 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 case management as a concept, it just is so intuitive to me. It's like I love context, I hate silos. I love knowing the full breadth of what's going on so I can make intelligent decisions and take the best next step and case management to me seems like the 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 ideal vehicle for those those decision making processes yeah and so many of the, the the trouble with trying to silo everything is that it's almost impossible to do even though you know we've we've managed to do it for many years i just don't think it's a good fit you know there are some things like uh you know employee onboarding that we've always treated like a process mm-hmm. and it's just it's just not. I mean, it might be if you're a really small company and you're you're running a you know two or three men plumbing shop and mm. you want to hire a new plumber. That's probably pretty simple. What happens though when you're a large organization like a university? I'm I'm fairly certain, coming from the academic world myself as I do, I'm fairly certain the hiring process for a tenure track professor is somewhat different <laughs> than a member of the janitorial staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that allows for those differences, right? It allows for kind of individualized treatment um, depending on their route in. It's weird, you know, just sort of seeing the arc of how industry has evolved uh, over the course of the 20th and 21st century. Everything was you know, super ad hoc in the 1800s mm-hmm. because there was no such thing as scientific management. Nobody, everybody thought that management skills were a gift that had been endowed upon you by your creator and you either had them or not. Mm -hmm. And then Fred Taylor came along and said, nah, this stuff isn't rocket science and we can teach it. I'm really sure Fred Taylor didn't say this isn't rocket science (laughs) because there weren't any rockets. But the the idea that scientific management sort of pushed us into, and it's true all the way through the 1960s and 1970s with BPM, is let's make everything standardized Mm -hmm. and regular, and let's do everything the same way every time, and let's document our processes, and that's great. You have to do that. But at the, you know, and that's fine at the, you know, 500-foot level. Mm -hmm. At the 10,000-foot level, it begins to be an awfully difficult thing to try to implement. I mean, case management just 
makes your life so much easier if you add that the level of ad hoc decision making that a lot of complex processes require. Well, and I also think that um, you know whoever your end end user is, if it's it's an internal case or if it's a student or if it's a customer, is these days the the expectation is changing and the the information that these end users expect you to have is shifting. So having kind of a, a place to to work whatever is the you know next steps at hand that that has has that information and has that context i think is really important in in this day and age in particular i think it's also true that because we have so much information on hand that decision making has become more not less important we we had sort of this fantasy i guess in the 60s and 70s that you know the way to reduce uncertainty and the way to make yourself more efficient was just to take human decision-making out of it. It's Mm -hmm. like, this is the path and this is what we'll do every time. And I guess it worked back then. Mm -hmm. Um, But now when there's so much information available, when there's so much competition available, when, you know, you have somebody who can just call up someone in China and say, hey, can you guys build a widget that I've just invented? Mm-hmm. Um, you really need to be a lot more responsive, and decision-making needs to be a much bigger part of what you're doing with your your processes. Yeah, and I think that it's almost like there's these two separate pulls within the industry where you have on one side, you have case and agile case and you have like for for, with process director you know kind of communication with in case to add all of this kind of human um human intelligence within case management and then on the other side you have this sort of like ai rpa you know let's take the people out of it um and and it's going to be interesting to see how these two two disparate camps come together and 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 communicate for optimal results well i'm not entirely sure they're the same thing no they're not but they are two trends that are pushing in different directions yeah but i i think that those are are trends in two different areas to do two different things I, i i think the ai piece is let's get rid of all the repetitive uh, mental labor that mid- middle managers go through. Sure. You're taking, analyzing data and trying to come up with data-based decisions. Computers are always going to be faster at that, mm-hmm. which is why they're talking about 40% of all middle management jobs being gone by 2030. Mm-hmm. Why employ middle managers to make decisions based on data analysis when a machine can just say, look, these are the trends, this is what's happening, you make the decision at the higher executive level. Mm-hmm. Uh, those decisions now can become more part of your strategic rather than your your tactical decision making. And so that's the one piece. The, the The piece that case management, I think, speaks to is your strategic decision making. How are we going to move this case forward? Right. And, and that makes sense. But I feel like there is there are going to be decisions that are going to be made around what what AI can and can't take over. And then there will be places where it overlays within within case. Like, okay, let's say, you know, there's certain pieces that AI automates and then there are certain pieces that um, people move forward with strategy. And what what is kind of hopscotched between human and 
whatever version of automatic you want to place out there. It's just going to be kind of interesting to see how they come together in that way, if they do at all. Well, the thing about case, and and I I see your point about, you know, some uh, decisions that you might make in a case might be analytically driven off of some predictive algorithm that you've gotten from AI. I -hmm. can see that happening. And let's not even get into this. Actually, let's get into it in a few minutes. But (laughs) the whole subject of whether AI is going to be as fruitful as everybody says it will um, or whether it's going to throw us into a dystopian nightmare, (laughs) we'll we'll talk about that. (laughs) The thing about the human decision-making for case is that it allows for highly ad hoc stuff that will never be addressable by AI, as mm-hmm. far as I can tell. AIs are just never going to be able to to make intuitive decisions based on what's essentially no data. For right. example, you know, my background for the first 10 years of my adult working life, I was a military policeman. As uh, may surprise you, I occasionally came in contact with a crime. <laughs> and what happens whenever you're doing a criminal investigation is – so human decision driven right and i don't see of any way to 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 have an ai get involved because once somebody shouts there's been a murder a whole bunch of things have to happen the trouble is you don't know which of those things you're going to do you don't know what order you're going to do them how many times you're going to do them um you know if 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 you find somebody who is murdered in a locked room that's locked from the inside. Um, that's a completely different thing than, you know, somebody gets shot on the steps of an apartment building. All right, if, if I got this somebody get shot on the steps of an apartment building case, I've probably now got a couple of hundred people i got to talk to. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to probably grab a couple of uniforms, and that whole apartment block is going to have to be canvassed. And every single one of those interviews constitutes a process. Mm-hmm. I have to find the person's name. I have to take down their information. I have to ask them certain questions. I record their answers to those questions. Those answers are then transferred over to the case file. And so what I'm doing with that apartment block is I am implementing 300 processes just to start one case. Right. And there's no way that an AI can tell me how many people I got to talk to. No. There's There's a whole bunch of... Of, of things that I have to look and make a rational decision based on what's going on at the moment. And I'm doing that really without any sort of analytical background other than to say, grab a couple of uniforms, go to every door, knock on every door. Right. So then maybe you could do, you could argue, say, like in, in an alternative past that there was a the technology to create a little witness booth that you would just drop the witnesses into and then they would take over being automatically interviewed by, you know, cop, (laughs) you know, know, robocop, I guess we would call them. And they, they, they churn out a list of questions that have been algorithmically like preset based on the circumstances and that have been through repetition proven to yield the best results. And rather than having the uniforms, you have these like little booths that you just shove a queue of people into. And that's the way you take care of that manual process 
someone, you know, with, let's say, the data being analyzed by a, but by see, a computer. But but the decision of who to shove into that booth is still going to be a human decision. Right, which is like the overlaying piece, right? Where there's always going to be a person behind, um, behind kind of, what is it called? <laughs> what is it? The Wizard of Oz? Um, behind the... Um, behind the curtain. The curtain. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and And... and and that's, I don't think, ever going to go away. But I do feel like no matter the context, no, even stakes of the context, you know, the idea of like automation and the idea of bringing in something based on past, you know, proven iteration, I feel like there's going to be a lot of experimentation in that direction. I think there is. I think, you know, we, we talk about artificial intelligence, and I don't think that that is the term we should be using. Mm. I mean, in process director, we use the term machine learning. Right. I think that's a much better term. Yeah. And and machine learning isn't inaccurate. I mean, it is one of the, one of the umbre- pieces under the umbrella term of artificial intelligence. So... I don't think that it's mismarketing, um, but it it does definitely bring out a different mindset than when artificial intelligence and the you know everybody has an idea of what AI is through media, and it's not that. Yeah, but I mean there is actually a definition of it. It's the ability to think creatively across multiple domains. Right. And it, we're a long way from that. Thank goodness. Right. But the discipline of artificial intelligence and like natural language processing versus machine learning versus, you know, let's say artificial intelligence as a, you know, mechanism, I, I think that the discipline is not necessarily holding to the definition of artificial intelligence. Well, but the thing is, you know, the, the machine learning piece, the natural language piece, these are all tiny pieces of that big definition, mm-hmm. which is thinking creatively across multiple domains. If I can't do any of those little pieces, I can't do the big piece of mm-hmm. thinking creatively. Right. And so far, I'm happy that we haven't approached that thinking creatively part of AI. I'm not sure. sure. <laughs> I, I, I have a number of fears about mm-hmm. crossing that. Uh, yeah. That l- l- I grew up on the Terminator movies, so I don't, I don't need Skynet coming around in any sort of reality. But, um, but yeah, I agree with you. But I, I'm just saying that within case, like, it's going to be interesting to see how these different technology trends overlay with something that I feel is the most, you know, human and context heavy element of um, automation. I, I also wonder about just on the implementation side, whether people really don't want to use case because it kind of complicates the whole design process. I do think it's it's more complicated, but I think that the yields from it are more valuable. Um, I think that it, it's a, a, a process that takes maybe a little more fluidity of imagination, um, it, it, maybe a little more education of the team that's going to be utilizing that structure. Um, There's, there's some onboarding pieces that I do agree are more complicated than just laying out a process. Yeah, because see, the nice thing about process is that it's so comforting, right? Right. Well, this thing is going to happen, and then this thing is going to happen, and this thing, and then at the end, this will have Mm -hmm. happened, and Mm -hmm. we'll all know where we are. And case doesn't give you that level of certitude, because it has so many places where you can put in your own sort of ad hoc 
reasoning. Now, the case doesn't have to be ad hoc. I mean, you can kick off a, a process, I suppose, based on sure. something that happened in another process. It doesn't need necessarily to include human intervention, but at least it provides you with a, a lot of What's the plural of nexus? Nexi? Nexi. Uh, nexuses. <laughs> yeah. Uh, nexi, nexuses, whichever is proper, uh, for human intervention where BPM just doesn't do that. BPM really, once you've started working in case, BPM feels a lot like a straitjacket. It feels like you're, you're, you're being artificially forced to do things that you don't want to do in an automated fashion that at some point somebody's going to have to make a decision about whether you do it. Mm -hmm. And it's really true if you start doing things like, you know, the, the little sample project I did was like the auto claim. There's just no way to make an auto claim a process. It can't be done. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many times I'm going to have to get an adjuster out there when it starts. I don't even know if there's another insurance company involved. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I used to work out at the Naval Weapons Station in Fallbrook, and mm -hmm. they had all these ground squirrels out there. I mean, the place was just lousy with them. <laughs> and it turns out that Hyundai, for whatever reason, uh, uses these vegetable-based plastics as the insulators for all their electrical wires. Okay. It also turns out that ground squirrels love the <laughs> taste of those. They're delicious. And so we actually had somebody who had – who'd gotten a brand new, I think it was a Genesis, um, and in like three weeks, squirrels had destroyed the electrical system of oh. Genesis. And so all of the wiring that was exposed in the engine bay all had to be replaced. And some of it that actually gotten up into the vehicle itself and had eaten the gaskets around just to keep eating the insulation. Oh my God. Wires. And so it was, you know, thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, there's nobody else to blame if you're the insurance company. Um, you know, squirrels are notoriously difficult to sue. <laughs> so you're on the hook for it. Mm -hmm. Okay, but what if somebody, you know, runs into you from behind or runs a stop sign? Well, now I've got another insurance company. So just processing the claim itself mm -hmm. now has the possibility of, of processes for going after another insurance company, uh, getting your legal team involved. Even the, the the case itself, even and that doesn't even get us to the point of having an adjuster go out and do what adjusters do, mm -hmm. and then going through the process of obtaining a repair estimate and reviewing all the repair estimates, telling the customer which ones are acceptable and what have you. I mean, those are all really complicated things and require human decision making at at every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And I, I, an auto claim is simple. I mean, a court case gets fantastically complicated. Right from the get-go. Right. How many witnesses am I going to have? How many depositions am I going to do? Who's going to be there? What's the schedule for those? Am I going to have to do motions? I don't know. I might not have to do any motions. Maybe I'll have to do a motion because I don't like a motion that they gave. Right. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, and I certainly don't know what's going to happen at the end of that case. There's all this uncertainty surrounding you know, a, a legal case, and there's just no way to do certain things without case. And I think we've gotten so used to looking at BPM as the be-all, end-all, mm -hmm. um, that case is like a, a big breath of fresh air for me, but for the end customer, sometimes I'm, you, know, you, you, you dance with the one that brung you. Yeah, for sure. And it isn't to say that they have to turn in that dance card altogether anyway. Like if you default to the case as the starting point, you know, allow access to certain 
appropriate permission level to the people that interact with that situation or customer or student or whatever whatever is the case. Um, but then, you know, in lay certain processes that 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 can be automated, like let's say if they do have a simple onboarding, but they there's still like case that belongs there and the people can see that onboarding process but perhaps then you know something happens where they um, sue the organization (laughs) 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 this things went really wrong soon after onboarding you know if that if there's like a default to a case around around any sort of situation then there's that that context that's always present and that's always i think a boon for for most situations. The other problem is what is a case? You know, and we can, we can define a case sort of technically. In fact, we, we did that when we began. But, you know, when I'm looking at a particular situation, determining what the case is, because, you know, I get a lot of this from customers. And let's say you have technical support. Mm-hmm. You're going to set up some sort of technical support for your ID dep- IT department. What's the case? Oh, well, the customer. Really? Mm-hmm. Because... My suspicion is that customer is going to have a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's certainly going to be useful to find that customer and find out all of his cases. But the customer himself is not a case. Mm-hmm. The customer is just going to be a participant in a lot of cases. And I, I just see that a lot with, with customers who, who just misidentify what the case is. So do you think that certain cases should be able to communicate with others depending on that context? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in fact, Microsoft has been doing that with SharePoint for, geez, a decade now, mm-hmm. where you know, whenever you kick off a, and it doesn't have to be a workflow, although they have a really crappy workflow engine, <laughs> uh, but any sort of document list or document library, you can always say, hey, I want to associate this document with that list. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get like sucked into the, the database as part of it, but... Now I can do a search on what are the things that are related to this database. Mm -hmm. And so I can do a search of all these external documents or workflows or whatever because I have those associations. So Mm -hmm. being able to make that association is super helpful Mm -hmm. in some cases. I'm not sure it's helpful in in every case. Um, You know, tech support isn't a great thing. Just because, you know, Microsoft Word wouldn't start. Uh, doesn't necessarily have anything at all to do with um, I can't send emails. Mm-hmm. It's just they're in two different domains. Do I care if they're related? No, I probably don't. So before building in that architecture of making one case relate to another case, I would really want to do some due diligence to figure out whether those would ever be related in the real world. Mm. I mean, it's it's great to have the capability to do so, but why implement it if you don't need it right yeah that makes sense yeah for me it's you know you're looking at you're looking at the cases and how they interact and it's like okay so if the case is built around a customer or built around a a situation that the customer will will be within like how can case help with you know customer retention or how can case help with customer 
you know, satisfaction or, you know, all of those pieces in, in more of a macro sense. So it's like if each, each case, you can argue each case will give you the infrastructure that will then make a happier customer. But then are you able to look at them on, on a larger level and go, okay, all of these cases mean A, B, and C and kind of like analyze that that information for long-term gains. Well, interestingly enough, that is sort of how, I mean, Salesforce really treats the customer as the case. Right. Now, I think that's acceptable in the case of Salesforce because Salesforce is a CRM system. Right. Uh, And Microsoft Dynamics, same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to know everything about that customer. And I don't care whether they're related or not because Mm -hmm. I want every bit of information about that customer to be filtered through this case. And when I open it up, I want to have instant access to everything about the customer. So in that case, <laughs> case. So in that, <laughs> in that situation, the customer is the case. Right. Because what's going to happen if you have a, a you know, fully fleshed out CRM system is you're going to know who that customer is from the salespeople. So all the personal information is going to be gathered. Every time they buy something, you're going to know it because you're right. going to have that logged. Then when they call tech support because they had this problem or that problem, whatever goes on in your tech support system is also linked into your CRM system. So mm-hmm. um, you've probably made a tech support call and, and you're talking and describing the problem and you can hear tippy tappy tippy tappy mm-hmm. typing in the background. Well, what's happening is he's taking down the notes of everything that you say so that if, you know, a week from now or six months from now or a year from now, somebody needs that information, it's available to it. Right. And what a good CRM system will do is it will collate that information from that tech support and you'll be able as the, the manager of that customer's relationship, whether it's an account manager or whatever, or the sales manager, you'll be able to pull all of that stuff and see it. So you'll be able to say, hey, how many tech support tickets does this guy have? Mm-hmm. What were his problems? Mm-hmm. How was it handled? What did the salesperson say to him? Mm-hmm. And in fact, with a good CRM system, every time there is a tech support question, when that's resolved, um, it should ping the account rep right. so that he knows there was a tech support question and that account rep should be able to pop that open look at it and then call the customer immediately and say hey i see that you uh, had to call tech support how were you satisfied with the way the the tech support thing worked out for you how was the tech support tech and you can get sort of that customer feedback plus you're maintaining that cost that constant contact with the customer from the sales side so that they know that you know everything that i do there somebody gives me a call to try to find out how it worked out for me Right. And they're willing to listen to me and take my suggestions. So, you know, a good CRM system does all that, and it does so by making the customer himself the case. Yeah, and, and I I like that. And I like that because it's useful on on a, you know, the most fundamental basis, which is, you know, the long-term long-term profitability and growth of the organization, right? So it's like, okay, and, and I think that's one of the pieces that process has in its favor in that because it's set, because it's repeatable, there's a lot of data that can accrue that can then be analyzed. So it's like if if case can have that same sort of analysis or, you know, macro level um, gain, then that's, that's the... Um, that's the best of both worlds for me because I come from, you know, the, the kind of marketing side, everything is around the people, right? So I default to like make a case around the human, make the case around the, 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 the either it's the partner or the vendor or the employee or their student or whatever. So making the case around the situation um, 
without associating it to the heartbeat, you know, beyond it is, you know, perhaps a lack of imagination on my part. But <laughs> that's definitely where I default from from my, you know, stance. The thing is, different things are a case at different levels. Mm-hmm. At, at the, the level of the tech support call, that case is not really the customer, it's the issue. Right. That makes sense. Um, so I may have to have another tech support guy look at it. So I'm going to have to draw in someone else. And so there's a process for that. The, the process of of going through the steps of resolving their case is itself a process. Mm-hmm. And then I may have to invoke other processes in that case by bringing another tech, maybe by escalating it to a manager. Uh, there may be three or four people working on it simultaneously. So I may have three processes concurrently running. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each one of those little processes themselves are fairly static. And of course, at the case level, I can derive any sort of statistical information I need from the individual processes. But so at that level, the the case is the complaint, the tech support issue. Right. It the case becomes the customer at the very highest level of the CRM organization. Right. But at all of those lower levels, the customer is is not the case. There are proximate right. things that are the case. And so See, that makes more sense, like kind of like a Russian nesting doll of cases <laughs> where there's like a bunch of different cases of well, ultimately, different spheres. Yeah, ultimately that's what it is. I mean, right. ultimately everything is sort of encased in a big outer shell. I mean, the big outer shell is the enterprise. Mm-hmm. And everything else that takes place has to take place within the context of the enterprise and the objectives that the enterprise has set. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at some point you reach the level where the customer is the case at a higher level, ultimately, there's one big case that is the enterprise. Right, right. And how the enterprise is doing. Yeah, and that structure, like, makes more sense to me. You know, rather than having a bunch of kind of disparate linear processes that aren't necessarily communicating, having this kind of lattice work of, of cases that feed into one another and communicate looking more like a spider web than, you know, a freeway, um, I, I think that's that's the way forward. Yeah, it's so much easier, though, and I I think this is why BPM caught on so heavily. It's so much easier to say, oh, I know what my path is. Mm -hmm. I have this set path, and Mm -hmm. I'll go down it every time, and it will be easy, and it'll be convenient. And what you end up with is an organization with, you know, 50,000 separate set paths, which don't really talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I can, at a higher level, sort of concatenate some of that data and say, okay, well, this is happening on average this fast. But case allows me to just expand that. Now, you know, how much effort you're willing to put into making everything you do case and then making every case sort of fit into a larger Uber case, Mm. um, that is a lot of work and it requires a lot of planning. It's, you know, the reason why CRM systems like PeopleSoft or Microsoft Dynamics work, um, like in the case of Microsoft Dynamics, which wasn't built by Microsoft, was that the people at Great Plains Software spent 15 years trying to figure out what people want from their customers and how they want to relate to their customers and how they can serve their customers better. And so the CRM system that we have today is really the end result of two decades Mm -hmm. of people trying to create a universal system. And that generally doesn't happen with BPM stuff, like with Process Director. People bring it in, they have nothing. And there are very few customers who say, 
you know, I have this 10-year plan. <laughs> I like those, those futurist customers. <laughs> yeah, set up yeah they, they don't exist. <laughs> what they say is, well, you know what we need? We need to do a purchase request thing mm-hmm. first. Yeah. Well, I mean, they. I get it because everybody's looking for short-term, you know, short-term gains alleviate the immediate pain point. And that's the problem with implementing case is the attitude of, well, I can do 85% of what I want to do in 40% of the time. Right. And, and and that's the argument you have to make, which is, you know, you've got to spend the extra 60% and give yourself an end-to-end solution. Mm-hmm. Over the long term, it really is worth it because mm-hmm. whatever solution I build to an 85% satisfaction level is simply not going to last. And you're either going to have to go back to it constantly and tinker with the darn thing mm-hmm. until it works better than 85%. And at the end of the day, you're going to spend the same amount of time fiddling with it <laughs> as you would just building the system from scratch. See, it's all about the foundation, people. Um, that's what we're saying here. So take notes. I'm sure you already are. Well, that's the thing. You know, <laughs> when I was doing software development, people would say, well, how come you're not writing code? Because I don't know what the system is yet. Because mm-hmm. I don't know what you want. I don't have all the requirements. Mm-hmm. Writing code is is the quickest, easiest, least time-consuming part of this whole process. Yeah. It's trying to get you to understand what you want before I put it in stone. Because once I put it in stone, the costs of going and ripping it all out and restarting it are going to be high. Well, it's true. I mean, the requirements and documenting, you know, those requirements are key. And I think that that's one of the things when people come in here and ask about speed of implementation, that it's pivotal. And I don't think that a lot of times they came, come in with a question around this, the, the platform and it's more around the documentation than, than anything else. Yeah, well, the, the trouble with the speed of implementation, the answer is always, look, it, it's a super complicated system. So if you want to talk about how long it's going to take you to implement this thing that you're talking about, if, if I do it, <laughs> it's going to take about three weeks. Mm-hmm. If you do it... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, I, it depends on the person, right? It depends on how much they're willing to invest in training. Right. And, and you know, that's the problem with any complex system, any platform. And, you know, I've, I've done some research over the past couple of weeks on a number of zero code platforms because, I mean, zero code, as we always say on this podcast, don't learn to code. Why should you? Because there's going to be a zero code platform that will allow you to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I've been looking at a lot of these zero code platforms where really everything is sort of done on the screen. I just pick things from drop downs and I drag things on the screen and hook them together. And that's all really cool. But all of them are still complicated systems. Right. The fact that I'm not going to make you write you know, C-sharp code to make that thing happen doesn't mean that it's simple. It doesn't mean that it's not complicated, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a fairly large learning curve to it. And I think that's the, the, the expectations management problem. Anytime you're dealing with a platform, no matter how cool and flashy it looks, it still does so much stuff that just learning all the stuff that it does and how to do it is still going to take up a fair amount of your time. Well, and knowing knowing how to architect something, you know, is I think a big piece. It's like, yeah, you have to learn the capabilities of the platform that you're either stuck with or that you have, you know, the <laughs> the fortune of electing to, to onboard. But if you don't have a mind of how you want to, you know, create the system, 
with these bells and whistles, it's it's difficult and you will be limited and you won't take advantage of all the capabilities. See, the promise of no code is we're not going to force you to write code. It's not, this is all going to be super easy. Sure. And, and it shouldn't be, I don't think, because to create a... It can't be. Well, yeah, to create a process or case or whatever is the situation, um, it, it, to have that customized to what that organization or what that enterprise requires in the short and long term, it should be a little complicated that there should be some lift top behind it so that it is it is scalable, it's sustainable, it's um, reflective of what that organization requires, you know, what its culture is. Like those are all factors that that take some time and take some some heavy lifting. Well, the, the, there's a couple of lifts you have to think, or a couple of factors you have to think about when you think about the lift. One is the time. Look, if if it's not going to be any faster or cheaper than having the IT department write your code from scratch. Why wouldn't you just have your IT department write your code from scratch? Right. So there has to be a certain level of ease of use and a certain level of ROI that makes sense to purchase it. But but the second piece of that is one that people don't think about a lot, which is who is going to be doing the lifting? Mm -hmm. It's one thing if your business analyst is going to be doing the lifting. It's another thing entirely if your IT section is going to be doing the lifting. Mm And people kind of judge these things by, well, I guess we'll have to have the IT guys do this. And you know, we, we see it here all the time. If people say, okay, we're purchasing process director. Well, I guess we'll put our IT people in charge of it. Th- those are not the people you want in charge of it. <laughs> because they don't know what your processes are. What makes the lift easier and what gives you the ROI is not having a business analyst tell a programmer what they want. Mm-hmm. It's having the business analyst having the capability of building it themselves without needing a programmer and that's where your your ultimately once you've learned the system that's where your ease of implementation comes in and the fact that you're not having these you know hundred and twenty thousand dollar a year software engineers do it it's it's your business analyst yeah and i think in a best of all worlds is a coordination of both so that then i can it can communicate with other departmental business analysts or whatever is the situation and and fold it out in a way that is you know iterative yeah you say that i'm not too uh i'm not too keen <laughs> on most it departments nowadays oh you aren't okay. no there's not i i see that's dale's hot take i see yeah my hot take <laughs> is that it departments suck uh and the reason is and it look it, it's not because people in it are bad people uh it's because there are so many, you know, security and regulatory considerations that you go through, especially in a, a larger enterprise, that it fuels a mindset in the IT guys that essentially makes them forget that at the end of the day, IT is a service organization. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of IT is to make the rest of the organization work. And you know, especially your security guys kind of get into the idea that, no, 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 it's your job to do what I tell you to do on your computer. Mm-hmm. I'll get to determine what you can do and how you're going to do your work. That's um, that's the tail wagging an awfully big dog. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dale does not like being told what to do. Well, look, you know, it's, it's not that. I mean, look, we're all going to be told what to do. And for somebody who doesn't like being told what to do, maybe, you know, being a, a career non-commissioned officer on active duty, <laughs> w- 
wasn't the best career choice, which, by the way, apparently I recognize because after 10 years, I decided not to do it anymore. But at, at the end of the day, uh, IT is a service organization, and most IT, I say most, a lot of IT organizations that I run across in are way more directive and more of a hindrance to getting stuff done than they are a help to getting stuff done. And... I, I don't know how to fix that other than provide people with a product that doesn't require IT to interact with it hardly at all. So call us if you're interested in such a product. <laughs> we, as it happens, we, <laughs> we have We one. have a couple laying around. As it also happens, we are out of time for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you'll be back again for the next one. Until then, so long, everybody. Thanks.